There's a lot to say when buying a new home or car, but only one thing to say that can help you protect them. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, a State Farm agent will be there to help you choose the coverage you need, no matter where you are in life. When you need coverage options, your State Farm agent is there to help, on the phone or in person. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash Wondery, code Wondery. Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 926. Uh, this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Tor Books. Uh, the proud publisher of Shroud of Eternity by Terry Goodkind. Shroud of Eternity picks up where Terry Goodkind's New York Times bestseller, Death's Mistress, left off, promising a thrilling brew of bloodshed, deception, sorcery. The formidable sorceress, Nikki, and her companions, the newly powerless Nathan and the youthful Bannon, set out for another quest after driving ruthless slavers out of Renda Bay. Their mission, restore Nathan's magic, and for Nikki, save the world. So please... Don't miss Shroud of Eternity by Terry Goodkind. It is available now wherever books are sold. Uh, let's go to the Nerdist Community Court Board to find out where there's some stuff going on. First of all, I'm going to be performing in Phoenix, Arizona on uh, Thursday through Saturday, February 8 through 10 at Stand Up Live. Then the following week at the Brea Improv in Brea, California. And then the following week, February 23rd, 24th in Oxnard, California at Levity Live. So uh, tickets are on the internet for that. Please come out. I think I'm going to bring Mike Furman and April Richardson, and we're going to we'll have a nice time. Uh, also, from the community, the Laguna Art Museum in Laguna Beach will be kicking off a year-long series of centennial celebrations with their Centennial Bash. On January 27th, it will bring hundreds of art lovers and enthusiasts together and feature installations by artists Megan Geckler, Elizabeth Turk, and Friends With You. Live music by Matt Costa, DJ Nina Tarr, craft beer tasting by Laguna Beach Beer Company, and food by Las Brisas. Pre-sale tickets are on sale now. They're offering Nerdist listeners a, a discount to get tickets for $20 by entering the code ARTNERD. All one word. Visit lagunaartmuseum.org for tickets and info. Also, uh, Todd Glass has been leaving comedian Blake Wexler voicemails for the past 12 years. They're releasing all of them as a comedy album this Friday, January 12th. What started as a young comic saving hilarious voicemails from his comedy hero Todd Glass quickly morphed into a combination of bits and uh, bits and joke 'em ups and a documentation of a decade plus evolution of a friendship. It's uh, he describes it as hoop dreams for comedy nerds. Um, so, twelve years of voicemails from Todd Glass to Blake Wexler is now available for pre order on iTunes. It releases Friday, January twelfth of two thousand eighteen, which is this year. Uh, this episode is Paul Thomas Anderson, who is, I mean, is it kind of an understatement to say he is an incredible director? He is a, he is a genius. He is promoting Phantom Thread, which is playing in select theaters now. It is, I believe, Daniel Day-Lewis's last movie before he has decided to not uh, be an actor anymore. So you should definitely see it. It's I mean, the performances in this movie and the direction and the music and everything. It's just, it's such a beautiful movie. It'll be playing everywhere January 19th. So go see it. Paul Thomas Anderson, support good artists. 
Um, this episode also brought to you by Stamps.com, who has been an amazing sponsor for the Nerdist Podcast for all these years. So here's a New Year's resolution you can actually keep. Stamps.com, you can add to your business, save a ton of time and money this year. Bring all the services of the Postal Service right to your computer. You create Stamps.com account in minutes. You can print official U.S. postage right to your computer printer. Uh, that's it. Any letter, package, class of mail, then the mail carrier picks it up. No leaving the office. No hassle. And they're going to send you a digital scale that automatically calculates postage, the exact postage you need. And it is a fraction of the cost of the expensive postage meter. So right now, enjoy the Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale. Are you ready for a happier new year? Go to Stamps.com. Click the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Nerdist. That's Stamps.com. Enter the promo code Nerdist at the top of the homepage. And now, here's Nerdist Podcast number 926 with Paul Thomas Anderson. Katie, please roll the thing. Now entering Nerdist.com. Amazing hotel, and it was owned for a long, a long time. I think still is by. Oh God, um, a kind of um, a church group, and and everybody always wanted to shoot there, but the church group wouldn't let them, or they would want script approval or something like that. <laughs> oh jeez, so it really limited uh, the opportunity. I want to know what movies they allowed though with the script approval. So in Inherent Vice, can you just say the Church of the Burning Sun yeah. is the only true religion? No, I don't think we're going to be able. It's to. It's just the title Vice. It brings up a bad thing. <laughs> what about? Uh, we saw Phantom Thread last night. We yeah. went and saw a screening of it. It was fucking great. Yeah, it's great. Great job, man. Oh, my God. You know, it just... I guess, you know, most of the time, you know, not all movies are great. But then when you see a great movie with amazing performances, you're like, oh, this is what they're supposed to be like. Oh, this is what that's supposed to look like. But he's so... Daniel Day-Lewis is just... Everybody really nails it. It's yeah. inc- it really is. Uh, I mean, we, we, we'll talk about it some. I just don't want to give anything away. Mm, yeah, yeah. So I it, did feel like a like I could be a better husband after watching the movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. There yeah. were so there was I saw so many things. Where I'm like, oh yeah, I do that. Yeah. Oh yeah, do that yeah. too. Oh yeah, that's very familiar. Yeah. Yeah. I'm reading. That's something. good. Right. <laughs> that's that's, that's, that's I, that, I, so many flashes of just times I've you know try just been a dick and it's uh, yeah. <laughs> It was, it was a real good movie. Well, at first you sort of, you know, you feel empathetic where you're like, he's just trying to focus on work. What is wrong with that? And yeah. then you just see the recurring patterns. You're yeah. like, oh, yeah. That's, uh, yeah. Yeah. What's the, and this doesn't really give anything away, but the uh, the tea scene when she brings in tea and he didn't ask for tea. Yeah. And she's like, well, I'm taking it out. He's like, but it doesn't change the fact that you. The interruption is staying right here. Yes, with me. exactly. Yeah. 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 That's like that's a classic example of what it's like to work with Daniel. Like, <laughs> I, well, I didn't mean it like that. What I meant was, uh, I I had I wrote that scene, and I think maybe the ending I had was something. Uh, maybe I didn't even have one. It was like I don't want tea. Take it out. I don't want tea. Take it out. And Daniel comes up with the best line of the thing, which is, "Well, the tea is going out, but the interruption is staying right here with me." 
that's the kind of thing you get when you get Daniel Day Lewis. Is like incredible. right, he comes up with the bits that everybody will remember. I mean, how do you? How would you? How do you even characterize him? Because he's. He is a character actor of he is a character actor, but he's also an actor. He's a leading actor, but he so it's a, he's kind of a weird hybrid. Well, he's well look yeah he's one of a kind. He's yeah. Daniel he's Daniel Day Lewis as you know. There's a reason he's Daniel Day Lewis because he's Daniel Day. That's Lewis. right. Um, but his performances, yeah, usually the things that maybe we're thinking about, like Bill the Butcher. You know, or Lincoln, they're they're larger than life creations. You know, um, very rarely do you see him like an equally great actor, Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks kind of has a, a, a certain kind of personality that he can play variations on. Once in a while, he'll do something like different, like like Sully or something mm-hmm. like that. But Daniel genuinely seems to sort of shape shift into something else, but. I guess you, you you we feel this need to categorize it if it's a if it's a, it's a kind of a performance it's a character you say always oh, a character actor but he's front and center and he's the most interesting thing in in you know in anything he does so he I guess no I guess I was just saying I guess it's because he also he makes them he makes them so unique that they sort of become characters whereas if someone else had played Woodcock it. It, would, it it probably it wouldn't have had all the nuance. I mean, it's like it it when you see someone who's so effortless that it's just like I'm just watching. I'm just watching this. Per- this is this is this, I'm watching this guy. Yeah, I know. No, and I I've said something to that effect, and it kind of sounds almost inarticulate. You're trying to describe mm-hmm. it, and I remember um, showing a guy I work with a lot when he saw him put his socks on. And he's like, I don't know how to describe it, except I just watched a man put his socks on, <laughs> you know. And I think it's some feeling that you feel somebody inhabiting something and some kind of strange magic with Daniel that you, I don't know how it works. I've worked with him twice, and I still don't know how it works. It's just it's and it's like that live in front of you, mm. you know. I sat there in the front row and watched it happen, and it, it's the same. It's the same feeling that you get. When you watch the film, you're like, hmm, there's a guy shaving. I've never really watched a man shave like that before. <laughs> Strange. I don't know how he does it, but I like it. I remember when I was, uh, when I was in college, my, my best friend from high school had skipped college and became a storyboard artist. And I was a, kind of an amateur cartoonist. And I go, hey, maybe I want to try getting the storyboard artist. And he goes, okay, um, draw a guy walking across the street. I was like, well, that's not hard. And I n- never made one line on the page because I – because then when I started to think about like, oh, well, what kind of guy? What street? What's he doing? I don't know. Like I just couldn't mm-hmm. – I like so much of my conscious mind was in the way mm-hmm. rather than just doing it. And I think it's kind of the same thing when you watch someone because those would be two different parts of your brain when you're pretending and when you're being. Mm-hmm. And when you're watching him, you're like, he's just is. He yeah. just is that thing. Yeah. Um, I remember him when we were talking about other actors – it's kind of a window into how an actor might look at other actors um, and appreciate their performances in that way that you just said. He was talking about, I don't remember the film, but we had just seen it and we were on the phone and he was talking about John C. Riley, who had in a scene uh, woke up, I think, and answered the phone. He said, do you remember that scene when he, he wakes up and he answers the phone? I said, yeah. He says, Fucking Riley. Looks like he just woke up. <laughs> you know? And it was like, and that's what you're talking about. That's what you want. You're like, yeah, you look like, if you're going to look like you just woke up, 
Y'all yeah. like just woke up. Did you tell John that? I don't remember. Probably. I thought I told him that. Yeah. <laughs> he, uh, there was the guy who played the doctor in uh, the movie had a John C. Riley vibe to him, or maybe it was just the forehead. That's, it was, it's that Irish uh, Irish mug. I yeah, think. I guess, yeah, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. yeah when, that, I, when he popped that, up, I was like, I wonder if he's a Riley. Yeah. <laughs> Some other. Is this like the, the new Baldwin's? Is this going to be a bunch of C. Rileys everywhere? Probably in a certain some village from because that, that that actor's Irish. Brian Gleeson, his mm. uh, brother's Domino Gleeson. Oh, okay. Yeah. He's yeah. Brendan Gleeson's son. Exactly right. That's, he's got that Irish little bit, little bit of a lisp there, doesn't he? <laughs> I don't know what if that's a regional Irish, but there is sort of the like the cranberries Irish. The cranberries Irish. Which is like the Queen's English, the cranberries Irish. Yeah. But then there's that lispy version too, and I, can't, I don't know where that's from. Is that, a reg- is that regional or is that just... I don't know Irish accents. I don't have an ear for that at all. It all sounds Irish to me. Um, but I, it's very I, offensive. There's that's a very... very yeah, I know. I, uh, there's, a, there's, there's a very... I know that there's a very particular um, Dublin accent. Dub- Dubliners have a particular accent. It's probably not as offensive to me going, it, they talk like this with a little bit of a lisp. They sound like leprechauns. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not going to launch into that because I feel like someone's going to be like, that's not cool anymore. You can't do it. You're not allowed to do that yeah. anymore. I don't know. I think the Irish would probably be, they're always, too, you know, they're happy to be laughing at themselves. Good. So they'd be yeah. charmed by the clumsiness of what I'm what yes, I'm doing. Absolutely. Rather than well, they'd be ripping. drunk. See, that's a come part. on. That's, that's not, the part that shouldn't have happened. That's not cool. <laughs> yeah, of no. you. I'm uh, using myself as an example. <laughs> <laughs> as he drinks boxed water. Yeah, yeah. The boxed water, by the way, I we you know we're giving it a shot to maybe not use so much plastic, but it's just this weird thing where you got to no, turn it like shotgun style. It's like this. Yeah, you just I just feel like it's strange. Turn it at all. Are you are you okay with the box water, Paul? The upper um, <laughs> portion is scratching. It's mushing into part your of face. my lip. Yeah. But yeah. Other than that, I'm. It tastes good. Yeah, I know. Maybe yeah. we should just go. I think we should go back to plastics. I want to talk a little bit also about your history with Largo. Like okay. With the with the because I mean I, that was when I started doing stand up. It was kind of at Largo. And uh, and that those the Monday night comedy shows at Largo. I mean, even even as much as you know, the Cornet Largo era is superlative. You know the, that old club on Fairfax, which the, there's still a restaurant there now, that community restaurant, and they retained like they kept. If you go in the bathrooms, they kept like the Largo signs. That's they, right. They made it the ceiling, and the stage is still there. But when did you stumble upon that, and how did you get involved? How did you get involved in that uh, that scene? It would be through John Bryan, um, who I met through Michael Penn, mm-hmm. who I called up to score my first film. Right. Um, and when I, so when I called Michael Penn, he said, I, I would love to do this, but I'd like to do it with a guy named John Bryan. I said, okay. Um, I was kind of calling you, but who's John Bryan? <laughs> and... Um, now, first film, real quick, is this uh, two, or, uh, hard, Cigarettes or Hard, hard eight. eight? Okay, hard that was Hard Eight. eight. Um, and so when I met John Bryan, I was in love instantly. He's a lunatic and a genius and brilliant. And then he was, I think he was about, I mean, he, he knew Flanagan, and obviously. And he, I don't remember what shape Largo was at that time, but somewhere then between meeting John Bryan and somehow six to eight months later, I found myself part of this 
this group of people on Fairfax, uh, generally generally on Friday nights, but Amy Mann was a big part of that as well because yep. she's married to Michael. Yep. And she would perform there regularly. And then getting to know Flanagan just meant like, right, I'm going to be here more than just to see John Bryan. I'm going to be here to see Flanagan and to see whatever else he tells me I should come and see. Hmm. So many great things that came through there. Do you remember um, White Trash Wins Lotto? Of course I do, yes. Yeah. That was, I mean, I remember, I think the... F- I think maybe the first year I ever did Aspen, when that was still a thing, I think White Trash was there that year. Is that right? And uh, yeah, that was... Did you ever see White Trash Wins Lotto? No, no. I, I think it was done by the time I moved out here. Because oh, it was like late 90s, right? When yeah. it was still going on. Yeah, yeah kind of late I was 90s. Not, or, I the first time I tried to go to Largo was 2001, and I waited in line to see Tenacious D, and um, I was the last person... Like The person in front of me was the last person to get in. And, uh, and and then they closed the door. And it was fine, though, because I was hoping... I didn't have a fake idea. I was hoping to talk my way in. Sounds like being, White Trash Lost Lotto. That's a good point. Uh, did you have anything to do with it? Or did you... Were you no, a fan of it? No. It just... it just you, just you just rattled my memory bank, and it came to my mind. It was amazing, though. I saw it at least five or six times. What was the show? It was like a like a play? It's kind of a... It, 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 it's sort of... Um, yeah, it was like a musical that sort of made fun of Axl Rose. Yeah, it was a... It was a, like, kind of overscaled Broadway style musical that told the story of Axl Rose with like uh, you know a, a stalk of corn or what are they what are they, like a, a, a oh, the, yeah, the yeah, grain the wheat, yeah, the wheat yeah. grain in his mouth stepping off a bus and hitting the big lights of Hollywood and, and what <laughs> what happened from there he just kind of made into this uh, the, the music was great the stories were great um, and just deeply deeply funny look yeah. at the construction of a band and becoming rock stars and drug addicts and lunatics and all that. And it was pretty great. Was it a guy, was in it? It was a, was a guy from Wall of Voodoo? Was it Either Andy Preboy? Yeah, that's right. Preboy, I think. Yeah, I think it was. And who was the replacement singer in Wall of Voodoo? That's right, after Stan Ridgeway. Yeah. Yeah, I have yeah, my facts. Yeah, yeah. Sam Ridgway used to be a customer at the record store I worked at. Holy in. shit. Yeah, yeah but the, there, there were so many shows that like kind of really popped at Largo, like Naked Trucker. Yeah, and, that's right. Uh, Naked Trucker, right. Naked yeah. Trucker was great. Um, Mary Lynn uh, Rice Cup and um, Karen Kilgariff. Girls Guitar Club. 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 Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was great. That was great, too. And then um, I saw at the... Higgins Boy. Higgins, the Higgins Boys and group of predates Largo okay. by like a decade. All right. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I saw I saw Mitch Hedberg once at Largo uh, read what he called a, uh, a he said he he said uh, I wrote a menu on spec, and then he just read a he just read this oh menu that he wrote, and then he would stop you know it, he, he was basically just like food items and then he'd be like I'm not sure I am using braised correctly in that context <laughs> and he just fucking read a menu that he wrote I mean Jeez. it was such a great fertile ground for experimentation but then also i mean you can sort of see the parallels of that kind of artistic comedy scene and then and then the film movement that i think you helped create like in in you know in the mid in the early mid 90s and uh and it you know it was such an an incredible magnet i mean do you really do you sort of look at that and say like, oh, we all sort of fed each other. Like we all are kind of – we were all kind of helpful to each other in, in those ways. Well, I certainly felt inspired by my nights there and um, and not even directly like 
oh, I'm seeing a performer like Mary Lynn or Patton Oswalt, and they can come be play a part in this film, because certainly there was that. But I suppose you're right, and I never really thought of that, where I haven't in a long time of just like feeling good after going out to a night there and getting energized to wake up the next morning and start, you know, and keep writing, work, working whatever you're working on. There was a really, it was a really fertile time. Um, and certainly Amy's music she, that she was playing there a lot was inspiring me to write Magnolia yep. mm -hmm. at the time. So then that, that would be the film that probably at that time came out of my experiences spending time there. That's really rad. Amy's, you know, it's, because I, when she, when she did the soundtrack for Magnolia, I hadn't really heard anything much of hers because that was slightly, it was a little bit maybe before I came into Largo. It was like 98 was when I came in, but I hadn't really heard much of her since Till Tuesday, which to me was just like, oh, this is just kind of a pop song. And then going back and listening again and realizing like, no, this is actually really a dark. Yeah. Like there's a real story and a fucked up through line to this that... <laughs> recontextualize after the after magnolia it was like oh my god there's so much i just yeah i just missed the brilliance when i was young because i just thought it was just like a pop song sure sure she's always been good at writing um upbeat downers yeah. you know, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> her album this year is, is one of my favorite albums of the year Mental, uh, mental health and uh, mental illness. Have you heard it either? No. I haven't heard it yet. It's, no. It might be like one of the best albums she's ever made in her life. It's incredible. I highly recommend it. But it's funny because you know, you, I'm sure you think back to those times. Like, oh my god, I haven't seen those people in a long time. And you, like, what do you have like four kids now? Mm -hmm. or, you, have, you have four kids. And uh, but I used to take Groundlings classes with your wife too. You're kidding? No, in like '96 maybe. I think like mid '90s. Sounds about right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We were both there. At was the, John Crane a teacher of yours? I can't remember. It was. Um, there was a woman named Karen Mariyama, and then there was a uh, a guy named Michael McDonald who was on. It was like uh, the Groundlings were either going to like SNL or Mad Mad TV. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it was just like a, it was like a lot of those people. But uh, yeah, she was great. You know, I was really happy to. She was really super cool back then, and every time I would run into her, just still super cool. And right. Like now, like a mom with four kids, and still like so. I would imagine that takes a lot of your extra energy, though. <laughs> um it, it absolutely um but there's no better place or no other place I'd rather put it but it's not even extra energy the extra energy is left over for the movies now the energy goes to them honestly <laughs> like usually like um monday's my day off usually I like come into the editing room and like nap because you've just spent like seven, you know, forty-eight hours with four kids, and it's fun. But it takes a lot, a lot of energy, and did, I have a lot of energy, which is good. So I've got it to give. But yeah, um, yeah it's great. Did it change? Did having kids change? Because you know, people say, "Oh my God, when I had kids, I realized it wasn't all about me anymore, and I just totally reprioritized, shifted all my priorities." And so, do you, were you ever concerned? Like, oh, am I still going to give a shit about making movies? Like, once I have kids, am I only ever going to care about that? Or do you still feel like your passions are... No, I mean, no, I mean, no, I never really... I, I mean, I, I always, I think I always knew that I would have a lot of kids. I, I've come from a big family, and I, I aspire to have uh, many kids. I, I, I enjoy a big family. Um, and I had no fear about it. 
re, you know, altering the landscape of my priorities or anything like that. Um, I suppose in a practical way, I knew that I, I don't make movies that often. I mean, I can ma- I make them every maybe sort of two to five years. Mm-hmm. And so being a writer is a really good job to that fits in with being a father, you right. know, because if you, if, if you choose to sort of work a kind of, you know, a schedule that, that allows for it, I, yeah, I wake up before the kids wake up and do some writing and then get them up and get them to school. And then they're at school, you know, and then there's all that time that they're at school. So, but come three o'clock, you got to be ready. You got to be ready <laughs> for the onslaught. So, um, but you do have to understand though too, that, it, when you when for me when making a movie it, it that becomes very hard that's about three months that's about 60 days where you know at this point you have to look them in the eye like right i'm not going to be around much you know but um on this they were they came over to england you see them before you go to work see them when you get home so it it all just flows i mean they're sort of they're i don't know i never had any fears of of that but also, you, you, I would imagine you have to learn. Were you a really disciplined? I, obviously, you, I, I assume you were a disciplined writer because you've been making movies for so long. But, but you, were you really good about going? Okay, I'm gonna. I need to write from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Or did did that sort of change how you became your work with the creative? Time? No, I was always really. I was always kind of like that. Even as a kid, it was a really strange discipline that I had for myself. I think I. I I worked really hard at it because I never felt like secure as a writer. So I really like I put my mind to it at the exclusion of my schoolwork. I did not do schoolwork. <laughs> I just practiced writing screenplays. And now you're very successful. So the lesson here is don't do your schoolwork, kids. Yeah. If your kids hear that, they're going to be like, you didn't do your school. I know I didn't, but you'd have to. Yeah, I know. Um, but look – if they were sitting down to write scripts, I would probably I wouldn't have a leg to stand on. Like, yeah. Okay. Um, I always had a good discipline. Um, I think because I probably felt scared. Like, if you want to be a writer, there was always that thing of like, you know, oh, you know, that romantic thing of writers getting drunk and smoking cigarettes right. and writing. I learned pretty fast. Like that was kind of bullshit. At right. least it was yeah. for me. Like right, if you get drunk, you can't write anything, no. right? Um, or at least it's not going to be any good. And somehow I found I kind of had this. Maybe it was an insecurity thing. You're like, right? If I am a writer, that means I'm making my own. I'm kind of in charge of my my day. I think I would. I felt too horrified to kind of squander it. And not that I would sit down and write straight from nine to three. I mean, I consider writing like if even if from nine to three, I sit at my desk or even if I sit on the couch and I watch TV or if I'm researching something, <laughs> I know the amount of things that have to come out of me, even if they can come out quite fast sure. they can come out like in 45 minutes or an hour, but there has to be that room to sort of sit with something yeah. or, or as long as you're, the old phrase, I've used it before, but I can't, I think Neil Young says like the muse will find you as long as you're sitting at your desk, you know, and I know what that means. That means like, right, you can't, you know, you can't just go fuck off yeah. and, and with your day. Um, you I can't be really running around town that. and doing stuff and like hanging out thinking that you're going to get hit with something that is worthwhile. I, that, in my experience, but yeah. I'm paranoid, you know, I feel like I got to work really hard. I mean, it, I always love hearing how different writers tackle this idea but you know when you sit down and it's like oh the screen's blank 
I can't. I just don't. I don't have it today. I can't get there. Like, do you, are you able to force yourself to write, or do you? In those moments, you go, "All right, I'm not going to get anything done today, so I'm just going to put this away and I'll come back to it tomorrow." Mm, I would try. I would try to never. I would try to create. I would try to. Mm, how do I put this? Never try to face a situation like that. Um, you go. You go to that computer when you know you've got something to get out. And if you don't have anything that's ready to leap out, you better be finding ways to start digging something up. Um, and that could be, even if that means sitting down and watching a movie or reading a book or even if that means taking a walk or daydreaming, you know. Yeah. But getting in that spot where you, like, put that pressure on yourself, oh, it's a, it's a, that's a mind fuck. That's a head fuck. That, that'll, like, I don't know, ruin your confidence so fast. Like, right. <laughs> um, I got to come up with something good. I don't know. Um, it's hard to be loose with writing, but I think I've found that when I'm, when I'm loose, it, it, can, it happens well. But other times, usually the stuff that you don't want to do is, like, editing or kind of, you know, the, the grudge work of it. Right. Which yeah. is just no fun. It's kind of like, well, I've, the inspiration part already happened. Now I've got to find a way to make this readable and cut it down to a reasonable size or something like that. And Does do that make it any in, sense? in an amount of time like that's quick enough to where you don't get sick of the idea or bored of the idea. For sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. You can labor on things for too long and then it just, and then it all looks terrible. And then, <laughs> yeah, and you really lose confidence. You don't even know what your lo- the words don't mean anything anymore. Yeah. Like I've heard this scene yeah. so many times. I don't even know if it looks good anymore. For sure. It makes sense. For sure. Are there moments, uh, you know, you, you must have like happy accidents, you know, where you go, oh, I actually meant to do this, but then this was such a happy accident. Now it's this, can you think of any specific examples or any of your films, like anything kind of iconic where you're like, oh, that was a total, total accident there. We just accidentally, I didn't realize we had that. And then there it was. You, you're putting me on the spot because I can't think of an example, but I know they happen all the time and they happen in a way, I, just thinking about Daniel, actually, Daniel loves the the typos and stuff that I leave in. And I, sometimes I'll leave them in They're a typo or a kind of a repetition of something will happen um, that wasn't intended just when you're writing so fast it just kind of comes out and sometimes you stop and you look at it and you go I'll just leave that in and Daniel always picks up on them he's like oh I, I, I love that I was like yeah it was nice and he's like oh we're gonna get and he's always on the lookout for my typos <laughs> to try to find a different way to flip words around or something like that so I'm really aware of them and they when they happen i'm trying desperately to think of one to give you a good example and i'm drawing but that's a good but, that, but if you if you happen to think of one later you can shout it out but 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 they, that's a yeah they didn't expect oil to come out of the ground <laughs> well, yeah no. that was like and they just like you guys just kept rolling what a and, great yeah the yeah. earth improv thing. yeah yeah and then you were just like yeah. let's roll with this oil this totally changes everything <laughs> we were doing but it, but you know with um so is this this is is he's retiring after this is like this is it he's taken a that's it? Yeah. I can understand based on the limited amount of information I have on him as a performer. My, my guess would be like it seems like he, because he's so he gets just so engrossed in everything that at a certain point you're probably like I would like to just live my life now and not have to go through that anymore. Is that right. part of it? It seems to me that that is a part of it for sure. Um, 
I mean, I don't know. I would hope that he'll reconsider and maybe just the sort of going through the couple of years of work to do this took took a toll. And he just wants to pause. But on the other hand, I could see that this is a real thing. He's just like, right, I want to do something else. I've got, you know, I suppose... I don't know how much better he can do. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah whatever it is, he's done it. Yeah. Like, he's proved... Yeah. He's, yeah. Pr- he's proved that he can do it. Yeah. But, you know, is that not... It's funny to hear you, on the one hand, say, oh, you get really paranoid and you get really stressed about about output and get... But then, do you not have... Do you not get neurotic about, like, okay, this is uh, Daniel Day-Lewis's last movie? This... Got to make this good, you know. Like, I mean, do you do you put that pressure on yourself, or are you able to just throw that to the side? That's to the side. I mean, it was never it, his decision not to retire came after the film, mercifully, anyway. So uh, perhaps I would have oh, some, okay, felt gotcha. some pressure, but I, no. I mean, you know, whatever nervous energy you bring into the beginning of a film goes away so fast with the practicalities of moving 40 people from one end of the street to the <laughs> other and just the nuts, the kind of shit nuts and bolts of it. Right. It just takes the wind out of you so yeah. fast. You're like, right. Okay. All that horseshit kind of nerves that's over. Right. Yeah. How do we, we need to get on with this. I right. Mean, just some real like practical, practical marching thing takes over in you as a director. You like, there's no daydreaming. There's no nerves. <laughs> there's no, none of that. Crap. Like, right. Get on with it. There's yeah. a lot riding on this. There's a lot of people, you know, there's weather issues, there's budget issues, there's all that kind of stuff. You yeah. just you're like, come on, march on. Yeah. Be whimsy on your own time. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you, you know, just hearing like, well, he's such a method guy and he's in char- like, he's super in character all the time. But obviously you figured out a way to communicate with him. Are, are you? But is that happening while you're shooting, or is that all done before? You're like, okay, we'll figure this out before. Then when we get on set. I will give you your space to be, you know, immersed. Well, it's. It, I mean, well, look, it, you it, understand. He, it, it, the idea of him being in character is is it, it's it's true and it's accurate to a point. But it's not as if he doesn't realize he's in a film. Sure, he's he's making that. Right. You know, that there's 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 a camera right there. And, sure, you know, he understands him what the mission is but the majority of work the t- the times that I've worked with him I think this is true for other directors too I'm not really sure it happens beforehand mm-hmm. like d- deep beforehand so whether it's historical research that you're doing or just dialogue or just sort of working on the script and, and really sort of mapping it all out and really really considering this is a man who lives here and this is the tablecloth he's going to have and those lamps and all these sorts of details happen beforehand. And what's great about that is that when you do get to the set, there's very little dialogue about what we're going to do that day. There's, you, you leave some decisions like hat on, hat off, tie, which color, you know, you kind of, you leave some of those decisions because it's nice to leave something to do. You know, he still has to get out there and now do the scenes and stuff like that. But there's very little, um, there's very little discussion about what, how we're, what we're going to do once we're doing it. We're not improvising and kind of discovering things as we go too much. Yeah. How do you, how did you pitch this movie to him did you have the script done or did you just have the idea for the pitch? i had an idea and we had a desire to work together again and 
Um, I thought it would be nice to see him uh, as a romantic kind of leading man. And now the stories took a lot of different turns <laughs> along the way there. It's not exactly that. Yeah. But that was a kind of a start. Um, wanting to make a, a movie about a relationship that really focused on that and having him involved in that was like just one of the like the couple things that you kind of have on a piece of paper like right mm, this 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 there's something there's something here there's something here that could be really nice um and so we talked about ideas um about we had a character that was kind of strong-willed and self-contained and self-possessed and cranky and you know that was artistic by nature so that it would be the idea was was about need was about what happens when somebody like that finds themselves in a position where they find that they're really in love and that they need that love and that, that, that kind of idea. So really we had an idea that it could have been anything. It could have been a sculptor. It could have been a writer. It could have been a painter. It could have been a musician, something, something that kind of lends itself toward that kind of lifestyle. Right. But none of those seemed very interesting or had been done or weren't very cinematic. I mean, you know, rarely is like writing cinematic. You know, I mean, there's been some great movies, but it's not it, seeing somebody sit at a typewriter. Lost Weekend's a great one. But anyway, there are good ones. But the idea of setting it in the world of fashion seemed really appealing to us. Dan's got a great love of clothes. Um, and the, as a backdrop for this story that could get a little nasty and peculiar it seemed really delicious to us having these women come in and out of this house and all these these gorgeous gowns and the intricacies of what it means to make them that was like it was really floating our boat when we were, we were reading about this stuff and getting into it what? I, I really like i love the the exploration of you know it's like being in a relationship but like he's like his business is women he's surrounded by women yeah. all the time yeah and beautiful women coming from all over the world yeah, it's like, and that that can cause you know friction um, in like in a relationship, no matter what the you know intentions are. And right, know, for and I thought that was like, like that when when that started kind of bubbling up, I thought it was such a great way to. But also, talk just about the idea that, <clears throat> just the idea that uh, I personally really, and this isn't too much of a spoiler, but just personally identifying with the the kind of obsessive nature of his rituals, yeah, and it's, and just the idea of like. This you can't upset the ritual. Like this is the ritual, and who are you to come in and fuck around with this? Oh, a second ago we were we we had sex. Like I thought everything was great, but this is this time now, yeah, right? And this yeah. is my and even sort of uh, you know there is there is kind of a recurring maternal thing that that happens with him, especially with Cyril, mm-hmm. and uh, and then ultimately with Alma. I think it mm-hmm. sort of feel, feels like that. But um, but I think you know what I've noticed in in, in m- m- a few of your films this sort of idea of like you know f- these kind of flawed people who sort of figure out how to form a you know like th- like they sort of choose to form their own family in a mm-hmm. way where it's like this is the we, we kind of pull together and we're this family you know, particularly um, uh, uh, with the boogie nights or mm-hmm. you know it's like oh they're forming a fan and I saw this with this a little bit too is that something that you think of or do you do you discover stuff about yourself after you see your movies and go oh I think I was wow I think I was trying to express this yeah probably when you that stuff you I mean I don't know that you discover that after the movie's finished you usually discover that for me kind of as the writing's going on um, and then there are even more discoveries as you're filming it like um, you're sitting there staring at two people in a scene and you're like, 
That's not how I thought this was going to go <laughs> at all. But it, you're, it's welcome and it's kind of exciting. Um, that thing, it's funny. You talk about boogie nights, but that, I don't know. I don't know anything about your life. But how intertwined is the life that you leave? Let's say a personal life and your work life. I would sure. imagine they they do intermingle. You know, absolutely. Um, and probably more and more these days. But certainly, my experience in the movie business with the people that I work with, I'm so close to. You know, they even when we're not making a movie they're my friends they're my an extension of my family so i've always had that um because i've always I've, since a very young age made films so it's kind of that's my life experience full stop just like right i don't i have a very blurry line between um a family that i work with and a family that actually live with right but you definitely I'm, I'm curious to sort of understand how you're able because you've worked with so many amazing actors and you know not to discount them as human beings but just there's something to it where it's like oh it's like the guy who can get into a cage with a bear cage or like a lion den and still you know like you're like oh he's gonna be okay because you know the, the, these people that you work with are they can do a lot of things and they choose to work with you, but you obviously understand how to communicate with a lot of different personality types. And so, <laughs> you know, is, is, the, is there some type of, uh, you know, is that, is that just, I like that. Did you have to sure. learn, did you have to learn how to do that? Or did you, or, or, or were you always like, like a good communicator? Cause not only do you have to be able to just communicate with them person to person, but you also kind of have to, get them to sort of do what you need them to do, which is another hurdle. Yeah. Did that come from being from a big family? Having to- hmm, I don't, I wonder, I never thought of it quite like that. That's an interesting, I mean, but that may, may create a false impression, that sort of idea of getting them to do what you need them to do. Okay. I never totally felt like that. I always feel like that there's always an agreement of what we're we're after and that if there's a help that I could give as a director is that if I happen to spot something that, that you're not you're not getting there that the, the the thing that we've agreed on that this is going to be funny and let's say it's not funny like well it's not funny so <laughs> now how do we make it funny you know um and so never really feel like that sense of I've got to navigate somebody towards something that I need them to do. Um, I've heard of things like that, like directors, like with kind of Machiavellian plans, like I'm going <laughs> I'm I'm to pit you against you and then he's not, I'm going to tell you one thing. I'm oh, gonna, right, oh, right, right. I'm going to tell you something else. Yeah. And that, I don't know, that's fucking scary to me. That, <laughs> that, that would backfire. That sooner, seems like it could yeah. super backfire. Sooner or later, no. you guys are going to get in the same room. Yeah. Be like, he, what? He, he told me that the secret history was that we were brothers. He's like, no, 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 and whatever it was. So I think I like to, I, the actors that I were, we all, everybody likes to be on the same page. Like, right, what are we after? What's the mission? And as a director in that part, you're just trying to have a wide angle view just to make sure maybe somebody's forcing it to, you know, it's like you can, you know, I'm sure you've sort of seen that like grounding stuff, just like how helpful is it? Somebody on the outside is just like, you're pushing it, you're forcing it, just right. whatever those kind of words can be. Um, and more than words, it's like just the setup of a situation, like, you know, 
I haven't seen many other sets, but sometimes you sort of get a sense that they're not really set up for the actor that the actor might as well just be like the tablecloth. Right. You know, and that, that's not at all how I like to work or the people I, yeah. So it's more like everything we're doing is in service of the actor. I think I learned that early on was like uh, the movies that I like have great, these great performances in it. That was the stuff that was really speaking to me. But two, the other thing is you realize like, right. I remember like a few months before my, my first movie, I was like, the what do I remember from looking at movies? I remember looking at the actors. Like I don't, I don't really remember what the wall color was. I don't remember production design. I, don't, I just remember looking at the actors. That's always been the thing I've been. Like, that's the biggest thing in the frame usually when you go see a movie, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, you can maybe get some wide shots of a desert. The desert looks good, but how long can you do that? That that would that would get really boring really fast. You absolutely look at this waterfall. Ah, oh, it's fucking great waterfall. <laughs> look at this river, great river. But sooner or later, that you you know that that would be a travel log film, you know? right? I mean, you like you after that shot, you really need to cut to an actor's face who's going to tell me the story that I'm there the, to see. It's so enlightening to hear you say that because now that you're saying that, it's like when I'm thinking about all your movies, I'm going, oh yeah, oh I see it. That you, you it, it, it you do form a relationship with your performers, but you but you as a director are there to serve them and not yourself. And it makes all the sense in the world why so many great actors want to work with you because even if they can't articulate that, they feel it. Sure. They see it on screen, you know, because Everyone, I mean, look, an actor really has to trust a director because whatever they do on set, you know, even if they give the most brilliant performance in the world, there's not a 100% guarantee you're going to use that take or that you're going to edit it that way or that they're going to look great. That's exactly right. And I've, you know as many actors as I do. Yeah, there's, a, there's an unfortunate thing that can get in because of, because of situations like that that unfortunately a lot of actors just fighting for survival will have to listen to a director nod their head who's saying a bunch of fucking horseshit to them. And they're like, yes, yes, yes. And they're like, right, let me just go do what I need to do. <laughs> right. Like, you know, and that happens, unfortunately. Like, so I don't know the way around that because actors have to survive and they have to take care of themselves too. But I think, yeah, if they, if they feel safe and they feel comfortable, that's, that's when they're at their best, you know? Do you involve them at all in the editing process? Are you like, hey, what do you think of this or this? Or like once they're done with their performance, they're like, okay, now I'll, I'll get it from here. I do invite them to be involved in that. And some of them don't want to be involved. Um, and some of them do. Um, you know, Joaquin, you have to like drag him by the hair of his head to get him. <laughs> in. Like, and then he'll kind of look at it like this. Like, you know. With his head down. Yeah. With his head down. But also in the meantime, I can remember getting a few kind of really good ideas from him. Just he's like, well, do you think we need that or whatever it is? It's, I, I mean, I, you know, it's, it, uh, there's a certain amount of work you can't, it's really good for a director to do on his own when sure. editing a movie together. Um, but I always love including the actors. That's very brave too, because you, 
in the sense that you know you, you might love a take of something and an actor goes my chin looks weird in that and you're like yeah, yeah but i need the no but everything else is yeah vanity yeah. will be the first thing that they'll you know. well but just just try not to hire those actors <laughs> <laughs> don't hire fat actors that's what paul thomas <laughs> no but it it you know it in that i think again goes back to the idea of just having a good relationship with them and they and and you know that making the actor feel safe is probably a really good thing to do because you're going to get the best performance out of them and they're going to want to work with you mm-hmm. and it's it's gonna it's gonna all click probably a lot better than if they feel like if they're in their head or they feel threatened or they feel like not it, safe i mean and even if you just took it to a practical level like what could ruin the everybody's day is like if an actor's not happy or they're not getting it right like you know those sort of moments where somebody like can't remember their line or they're feeling tight or whatever it is like you're not going anywhere until you get it you know so like right yeah they're the most important thing the move the 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 idea that is like the movie goes to the actor not this actor has to get come to this movie right you know? um but that said that's sort of around whoever you, the lead of the story is and i think there's there's other things like you you ask people to come in for a day's work or even an, a couple hours work do you know what i mean they that that sort of they're expected to step into a movie that is already existing and a world that's already on fire and you that you have to kind of well you know what i mean right? yeah, yeah, yeah um and that 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 has you have to be very careful with that too because I, I you know that can be very intimidating for people like, right like what wait what movie are we in because i mean do you want me to am i come on am i funny in this but hopefully you have those conversations way in advance and you you figure that out so that those poor people have to come in very quickly can you know, have something to offer and don't feel just like tourists. Yeah. Well, like when Martin Short came in and Heron Vice, it's like it became like very like a Martin Short scene. Yeah. Which was great. I, I love that scene. Yeah. I would never worry about Martin Short being nervous, though. Yeah. yeah that, that's true. <laughs> he's such like, a chill dude. He's just yeah. such a chill guy. Like he's it really is remarkable that as a comedy entity, he's probably the least insecure comedy person I've ever met. Yeah. Because he just he just. Yeah. He, 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 you see him on stage, and he's still as funny as he ever was. And I saw him and Steve Martin at um, do their live show. Where did you see it? I went to I went to Vegas to see it. So did I. Oh, you did? Yes, I was in like July or August. I went in uh, early November. I went, they they okay. did it or, yeah. or in the fall. I don't know if it was November, but it was in the fall. He did it again in the fall. Okay, you know I went. Uh, I took my mom with me, uh-huh. and I took I took Will, and uh, we just went and. And they were and they were great and you know with comedy in general and and, act, and actors too, it's really trying to like. There's a real art to trying to at least disguise the neediness or push it out of the way of like I need people to like me, and he doesn't have any of that. Like there's just not none of it. Yeah, it's like he could be sitting here talking with us and then just walk up and start doing a performance and then yeah. sit back down and keep talking. Like he's so he was super cool afterwards. Like there was no it just didn't seem to be in his head at all about that stuff. I think he's. I, th- I, w- I would venture to guess he's always kind of been like that. And maybe I'm wrong because I've only known him these past five or six years, gotten to know him, and I, I agree with you completely. He's he's pretty secure in his own skin. Then again, I mean, if I was that fucking funny, yeah, like, right. yeah, I know. But I know people who are super fucking funny and, and basket and, cases, and that, that absolutely, that's absolutely right. That find it really hard to put one foot in front of the other. Yeah, where where I kind of go like. 
I don't know if I would want to be that funny if it meant I had to be that yeah. like spinning, have my brain spin that hard all the time. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Marty's more, I think, cut from another era, and I kind of, you know, I don't look. I don't know how much fun those vaudeville guys were to be were to be around, but I don't know. Maybe less insecure than another a, a, a newer generation of yeah. comedians, but. Why seems just so at ease with everything. He's like, what do you want me to do? I'll do, the, I'll do this movie. I'll do the opening of that can. What do you want to do? Let's go. I don't really give a fuck. He's really just like, I don't give a fuck. Let's put on a show, you know, yeah. which is so, that's, that's what you're talking about, isn't it? Yeah. It's just loose. It's like, right. But He's you can't engineer that kind of don't give a fuck. You really just have to. And it's not, I mean, he cares about what he does, but I mean, it's just that. Yeah, it is. I think it's like, it's just a lack of, you know, when, when people People, I think magnetism, there's a part of magnetism that I think is someone who doesn't need you or need anything. You're just kind of drawn to them. I don't know. It's like, oh, what's the, how do they know this weird secret? You know, like they're just so, Mm -hmm. they can take you or leave you. And not that they're not nice, but I just mean there's not like that desperation at the core of all of it. Well, desperate, yeah. Desperate in our performers is not what we want, is it? Right. Yeah. What is the? I just saw it on IMDb, and I I didn't know it. What was the Dirk Diggler short film that you did in '88? That was it. That was the boogie, basically Boogie Nights. As uh, when I was 17, and obsessed by like the the which the now way overdone and overused format of fictional documentary, you mm-hmm. know. But Zelig and Spinal Tap, right? Um, were the things that I loved. And I had the story of like doing it around uh, kind of like, an, like the Axl Rose thing. We're talking about like a hick who comes to town who turns into a porno star. And I had Dirk Diggler and Jack Horner and Amber Waves and all these characters. And so I did it as a fictional documentary when I was 17 years old. I was a senior in high school and I filmed it with just friends that I had friends of mine, friends of my dad's. And that's, that's what that is. And that the, the, the bones of the story are boogie nights. There's this, essentially the same you know it's a rise and fall he comes yeah. he rises got a big dick he rises to the top then he kind of crashes and then i think in the film he meets a tragic end overdosing but and it was yeah but then um and so that was whenever that was 1987 and so then over the years i just continued to write and write and write and write it out and wrote it as a you know as a fictional story which was a really interesting way to do it, actually. I, fit, I felt like I was adapting a documentary that somehow really existed. Sort of like it went on for so long that I'd actually tr- tricked myself into thinking <laughs> these like are real people. these are real people and I'm just adapting the life story from this documentary that exists. But it was like, well, you made it and came up with it. It was really kind of a bizarre way to work. But Yeah, but, it, but, it, but again, but, but that idea and I think, you know, that spawned a whole uh, – I mean like that I think sp- – created this whole thing of like oh let's let's play with porn like porn as a as a real genre as a real genre like a ma- like a mainstreamy kind of a genre but you know again it i don't think like that was an example of like of, of almost a science experiment of can you humanize you know mm-hmm. can you for an audience humanize something that when people you know watch porn or consume porn 
the last thing they're thinking of like, what are their backstories of these actors? You know, yeah. it's like, what did they, what, what did they do before they got there? You know, of like really maybe making people like the sex part is just completely incidental. Yeah. It's really just about these human characters. They just happen to be working in this field, but really it's just about. No, the, the things like that had dealt maybe with porno before, maybe had always had like, it was, it was like super, super dark. You know, right. like if you're in porno, you know, it means you're from the Midwest and your father and you were like raised like Christian and you came to LA and you were sort of thrust into prostitution and it's just fucking misery and it's like hardcore. It's like Paul Schrader's right. film, hardcore. So there was always kind of a treatment about pornography that was kind of like that. Or it was just super fucking wacky and ridiculous and like yeah. you just come up like, like laughing at the crazy porn titles and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So. Maybe we just happen to be there a spot. I think I have. I think that. I think that. Speak for yourself, because I would always get the feeling like l- looking at porno as like a kid. You're like, well, wait a minute, how does this work exactly? <laughs> like, how did they? How, like, did they? Did they drive there? So they drove. They drove. <laughs> they drove to this house, right? And. Do they know each other? Like, I, always, I think Did that I guy have a boner going to thing, or did he just get it right there? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And what is the all of that? I mean, I couldn't help but ask those those questions. I was dying to know the answers to those questions. <laughs> but I think it's you know to think about doing that when you were a senior in high school and making a film in 1987 when. It was not easy to make a film in 1987. You had to get – fit. I mean, assume you shot it on – or did you shoot it on video or did you shoot no, it on No, no, no. We shot it on video. You shot it on video. So you, yes. did, you, did, you do like, did you do like VCR to VCR editing? That's exactly right. Yes. Yeah. yes. The classic. Yeah. Just a yeah. little snow between cuts. <laughs> Just a little wavy. Yeah. Like. Well, the good thing about that was is that your film would only get shorter. It would yeah. never get longer <laughs> because you realize like – Ah oh, shit. Okay, let me try that again. And and so that was helpful to keep the running time down. Yeah. And then um yeah, the um um I I tried to buy a video editing deck or rent one and I just couldn't even get through the manual. I was so inept at reading it. I was like I'm just going to stick with VCR to VCR. Yeah. yeah. And did, was it for a school project or just cuz you wanted to no, do it? No, it was just because I wanted to do it. Oh, that's incredible. <laughs> I mean, it's so it's not often that when someone is 17 years old they go i know exactly what it is that i want to do and i'm just and now i feel like we take it for granted because you know if i'm 17 now and i want to make films like i people fucking make films all day because they they have a studio in their fucking pocket right right but you know just the idea of where did you grow up in studio city oh you grew up in studio city yeah home of studios yeah so you but it was the first time i was like I mean, I had the ambition to do it, and I felt really confident because I could do it in my backyard. I, I had the right people to fill these parts. This great actor named Bob Ridgely, who's a friend of my dad's, who, who ended up being in Boogie Nights, plays the Colonel in Boogie Nights. He would play oh, the Jack Corner role. And the only thing I – what I, I had my camera, and, I, and it was just this logistical thing. Like, right, how, how, how am I going to pull this off? Okay, what do I need? Um, this is easy because I can do this in my backyard. I've got these guys running down the wash. I can do that. And just the kind of the logistical practice and learning that went into that was everything. What, what do I need that I don't have? I need a motel room. I have to have a motel room. So we're riding my bike up. It's not there anymore. It's, they tore it down and built a new one. The Universal City Motel right by Lancashire and Ventura. Uh-huh. <laughs> 
I was like, how much is a room? I think it was a hundred dollars. I was like, okay, can I pay you cash? Can I pay a check? And I think it was, I, I think it was cash. And so I had a hundred bucks and I was like, how far in advance do I need to tell you that I'm going to be here? You know? <laughs> and, and I think I, they were like, eh, you think they were looking at me like, and I was 17. <laughs> so then I had to go, then, then the next step is like, right, what day can I get everybody together? Because that, that's really the thing. That's still the thing, making a movie. Yeah, that's a schedule. Still, that is still the thing. Like, we can't have her on that day. She's got another movie or she's out of town. She's with her family. I mean, it just did not get any easier. So I was learning it really fast. It was like calling. All right. So I have a cast of 10. I'm going to make 10 phone calls. <laughs> on Tuesday, December 6th, can you, at 7 o'clock, can you be at the Universal Zoe? And And finally found that date that worked for everyone. Which was a school night, you of know? course, <laughs> of course. And like try, of course, for the weekends. Or I think maybe if we shot on a school, I think rates were lower as well for the motel, so I could keep the budget down as well. So that was another factor, and got everybody um, to this motel and shot like shot what I needed to shoot from about six or seven o'clock until about midnight, and and then the rest was sort of easy to fill in the blanks and all that kind of stuff because I would only need one or two characters here and there fond memories of that that was the first like single-handedly like right putting this together it was a great feeling to do it I just, is it available anyway is it online did you put it on, is it online or is that on like a dvd box set of something it's not it probably should be i fear that what's out there it's so it's the you know it's the days of vhs it's so mangled and so fucked up and hard to watch i have a copy i need to i need to i need to probably see what i can do about preserving it better Oh, you really should. Do you, yeah. do you, do you not have, did you not transfer it to digital? To is it just no. still on a tape? No, it's still on a tape. Oh, you gotta fuck. You gotta get that. Yeah. Somebody sold it online. I saw you can buy it online, or it's out there. It may be on YouTube. I actually haven't looked. I'm sure I've got to be on YouTube. Katie, look it up. See if I it's would, on YouTube. I would imagine. Did you say the name was? It's uh, was, the Dirk Diggler story. Yeah, I'm sure it's got to be. I, it's not often the internet fails you 100. percent no. Where it's no, like some no, content. Is it on there? Uh, it's okay. We'll wait. <laughs> Sorry, I think it's, it's, um, I wonder how long it is. It's, uh, it's not 30 minutes. It's yeah. between 20 yes. and 30 minutes. That's absolutely it. Holy shit. There it is. How are we doing? How many views does it have? Are they playing ads on it? I'm going to need some of that. Yeah. But don't go to the comment section. That could really ruin your day. That's yeah, a general. Yeah, that's a good down. rule in general <laughs> to never go to the comment section. That's fantastic. So that's just like on YouTube. The Dirk Diggler story is actually just on YouTube. You can just watch you it. So it is. It. it is. Pre- How does something like that get out if you have a copy of it? No, I, there would be copy. I mean, that was something that I sent around. Like, oh, you sent Hollywood. I'm here. Yeah. Like, pay, like, pay, like, seventeen years old. Like, do you want to make porn? No, <laughs> exactly. Boxing yeah. it up, like. Shazam! Look. <laughs> yeah. Do you? Uh, this might be a stupid question, so I apologize. But it, do you? When you look back at all of your work, do you see it as chapters of the same story, or do you see each one as kind of its own organism? I guess more towards that thing you just said, like each or like you. I really look at them related personally to like, oh, I was living, I was, I used to live right around the corner here and driving up, you're like, oh, right, I lived here when I made Magnolia. So I really, I tie them so closely to 
chapters of my life what was going on oh right oh that was the year my dad died oh that was my year my sister got sick whatever it was all that kind of stuff they're they're tied like that to my experience yeah you know like deeply and do you uh do you kind of look at them as like diaries in a way like because they're they're, sure. they're obviously stories going on that the audience wouldn't know but in your head it's really it's almost like a playlist in a, in a way sure I certainly, yeah, I would say that for sure. Yeah. It would be hard to look at something outside of it being that like, oh, that was just that one off that I, <laughs> you know, um, that would be weird. No. Yeah. They're all like these extensions of, you know, yeah, what what's going on? Like, you know, how you're feeling. Some are probably happier than others or crankier than others but that's not that, that's not to say I mean there will be blows like one of the happiest times of my life and that's a pretty dark film as well <laughs> so it's not as if there's a correlation in that way right you know um, yeah it's funny like that yeah I mean that was just, that was a really magical 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 time my first daughter had just been born life was like really great like nobody was sick everything 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 was firing on all cylinders and yet film is fucking nasty <laughs> but that's okay you know because that was the film that was the thing we were setting out to make you know right and that was yeah. whatever that was i guess uh, on the i uh, maybe that at that time the world was a little upside down personally my life was great but the world that was that kind of those that george bushy time and all that yeah. stuff so i don't know there might have been some of that but do you say do you ever say like oh you know i think i want to try to make a wet like you know when you're making there will be blood you go i want to try to make a western or do you do you come up with the story and then go, oh, this is kind of what it needs to be? I mean, do, like, do you do you seek to do – do you actively seek to do something different every time or is it just like, well, whatever this is, it just is? Try to – yeah, but within reason, not like, right, we really got to make a musical, guys. You know, that kind of thing. Like that – not that, that broad reaching. It's more like I think you do have aims towards something like on this. It was – there were these films that I loved and, and the idea of – the, the, the smallest idea was writing a, a relationship movie about a man and a woman. Right. Okay. But that, so that could be any number of scenarios. Thinking about Daniel, thinking about those gothic romance movies that I love, the Rebeccas and all that kind of – the gaslights and stuff like that. That kind of starts to guide you towards a little bit of a genre. You know, that kind of helps you have a foothold. Like, right. Um it wasn't as if I said, like, you know, I believe me, I have an itch to sort of, you have an, always have an itch to kind of go out to Barbados to start shooting or something mm -hmm. like that, but don't really listen to it too strongly. Some, like, it's just the things that start accumulating there, like, this is good, this is exciting, this sounds good, I like that idea. Come on, going to London, this is good, this is getting good, this is getting good. You know, you just keep hope, like, accumulate exciting ideas that, that, days later are still exciting you know when you find like it hasn't worn off there's no i'm not just drunk i'm not i'm not i'm not hung over i'm like i'm not hung over with this it's like it's it has staying power it gets you excited and then, then the next thing you know for me at least you're like it's too late you're going, you're going. <laughs> we're living there now it's happening yeah. so you follow yeah. the emotion in the gut more than that than the conscious like i am going to do this i think so yeah but then you sort of you know that that gut stuff only lasts for so long and then you start getting practical you're like right this is this is what's happening this is this film and how does that shape look and all that um yeah it is a relationship though because you it's you can get so excited about an idea and then 
then when you're doing it, it's like, oh, I have to stay, you know, you have to, yeah. have to stay excited about this because right. it's like a relationship. I mean, it really is a relationship. Yeah. Someone was saying that, um, they said, oh, have you seen the Meyerowitz uh, uh-huh. stories? Yeah. stories? And I go, no, I haven't seen it. They go, Adam Sandler's amazing in it. And they sort of said it like, can you believe Adam Sandler? I was like, but he's great <laughs> in Punch Drunk Love. You know, I was like, yeah. he's great in Punch Drunk Love. And then I know, but, you know, obviously he does this, he does, he does the Adam Sandler character in, you know, yeah. like na- now on Netflix. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think you really help show the world, like, oh, they, like he's a real actor. Like, he really is a performer. Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, I think that there should be like a moratorium on the like Adam Sandler's or real actor articles that I kind of see. I'm like, come on, it's so, it like becomes like he's fucking, you know, I've always loved Adam and he's given like great performance after great performance. Like, not even, I haven't seen Meyerowitz stories yet, but remember like Funny People came out. Yeah. I mean, it was that yeah, same thing. Yeah, yeah. It was like, Funny people. Wait, yeah. do you see how good Adam Sandler is? You're like, right. Like, it wasn't the last movie that he was, you know? And, yeah. and it's funny. It's like some people, I don't know, that they they get in a position where somehow audiences still feel like they need to be proven somehow. Well, I just think, so he, I think for some people, because a lot of people don't look, and again, this just goes back to people maybe not having enough attention or just being dicks. I don't know. But not really looking at a full scope of someone's work or someone's story. They see a couple things or a handful of things. You know, he he's sort of done the Adam Sandler character in more movies than he has not. That's true. And so I think yeah. for a lot of people, they just go, oh, oh, he's just a goofy, like, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. He didn't right. switch it up as much as Robin Williams did early on. Right. Which is to, like, kind of... Right, right, right. Him. And so I think that's probably... You know, and m- most people really will form a judgment based on one or two things. I wonder. I mean, I were we were I. I want you know. I was there for Peter Sellers doing Being There. I when that came out, and I remember that was really like Peter Sellers doing a dramatic part. You know, but <laughs> it's not that fucking dramatic. It's no. still fucking hilarious. But there is a thing I think is particularly attached to comedians that if we we've gotten to know them through them making us laugh. And suddenly we're sort of on edge for anything else that might happen. Robin Williams is a really good example. You remember there was sort of like Robin Williams in Good Morning Vietnam was yeah. a big. I think going back to Moscow on the Hudson, Moscow where it was like Hudson. it's not really a cop. Like he did some Robin Williamsy things in it. He was big. It was a big character because he was a big Russian. You know, right, right, right. But but ultimately it was like a really kind of a it was a serious was kind yeah. of a serious kind of. A Tom Hanks story. is somebody who has successfully. Confused audiences, and it, yeah. a, I mean, and I mean that as a as a grand compliment, right. and that we expect a lot from him because he's so fucking good. Yep, he's hilarious. And when he started out, it was it was Bachelor Party, Bachelor Party, and yeah. Turn, Turner and Hooch, and Splash, Burbs. But Splash some, was the first one. Splash was first, and he yeah. and I and that was like, uh, and that's when he sort of said. I'd heard this. I worked with a TV director once who had done Bosom Buddies, mm-hmm. and he said, you know, right out of the gate, splashing really well. And Tom had this theory that if you do a movie and it's successful, you get three more chances, and if any one of those are successful, you get three more chances. <laughs> and so he, yeah, he does have a few kind of early on where that are. Ill- he picked. I mean, he just made. He made a lot of great films though, too. Like. So I'm trying to think of the order in my head, and I'll get it wrong. But basically, big was the thing that was like something besides just wacky, yeah. you know. And but he's hilarious in it as yeah. well, you know. 
And then another level was when you saw him in League of Their Own. League of Their Own. Remember? Right. Yeah. That was, and still is. I don't know if you've seen that performance lately, but fuck, it's so it's good. It's great. Yeah. And then Philadelphia. And, and then, then you get Gump, to the more, then... you know, the D, you know capital D dra- dramatic stuff, Philadelphia, but I don't know. How do we get on this? Tom Hanks. Well, we're talking about comedians. We're talking Hanks about comedians and, and, and you know, like how there's some prejudice, prejudice in the business against comedians, which I, I personally think, you know, I, I get irritated that the Oscars is so snubby about comedies when I think comedies, I think it, like if they go toe to toe, I think a really solid comedy is equally, if not harder to make in some senses than a drama. Because you're really, you really are having to go out on a limb to make people relate to it and laugh, and that's a yeah. very hard thing to do. And a lot of comedians, I feel like, because they're so complicated, can give insane dramatic performances. Because they are a lot of them are very serious people. Yeah, I mean, I dare anybody to try and do what Tiffany Haddish did in that movie. I mean, right? You know who I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, I know yeah. Tiffany really well. Sure. You're talking okay. about Girls Trip. Yeah. That's like a fucking magic trick, how good she is in that. And I dare anybody to try and go on, like, take after take. Or even do one take as good as she is. She is a fucking force. Yeah. She, I mean, she, absolutely she's incredible. such a great performance. I remember seeing her in the back of the improv, in the small room at the Im- in the improv a few years ago. And she was crushing in front of a really small crowd. And I was like, she's going to be a superstar. You could just you could just see it. Like, whatever it was, the, like, the perfect combination of drive and and funny and charisma she's very and, honest too the way yeah. she that some of her stand up stuff is spot that I've heard I haven't heard much of it but it's pretty fucking straightforward we did a um, we did this thing for Comedy Central called um, uh, the Comedy Jam where you it was it, very, it was very similar to Greg Barrett's Bring the Rock uh-huh. where you tell a story and then you do do a song about it and I we were on the same show and she did um, she did the Tina Turner and the fucking musical performance, her voice was incredible. Like, had the dress, left up your guy, man, those, like, nailed the song, nailed the dancing, nailed the performance. I was like, yeah, she's just one of those people that's just gonna yeah. crush at every performance related thing that she does. But do you. How old do you think she is? I'm never supposed to ask. Tiffany, I mean, age. she's probably she's early 30s. She's early 30s, right? I think yeah. so. Yeah. Yeah, late, late 20s, early, probably early 30s. Yeah. 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 yeah, I think so. But, I mean, I would imagine you probably you see performers like that because obviously you love comedy, and you just sort of file that away and go. Yeah, I think that there's absolutely some- yeah for sure, or 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 not even file it away. Like ha, 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 I'm inspired. Like look, how how can I be a part of that? But you have a tremendous power because you you could literally you can you can make people see a dimension of someone. Even like Burt Reynolds, like Burt Reynolds hadn't done really anything in a while that wasn't kind of goofy. And, and everyone's like, oh, my God. You know, it's like yeah. you 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 sort of you don't just bring the humanity and complexity to the stories, but also the meta stories of the performers who are in them. People go, holy shit. Look at like, look <laughs> well, at even that with uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman in Magnolia. Like that was like the first time I saw him like do something that wasn't just like really Sad and creepy, like you know, like his role in happiness. That's and then, funny. That's right. That's yeah. right. Like he's so st- sweet and straight in kind of character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, that this just goes back to some things that we were talking about before. I think some of these things you look at most films, and how many times does somebody just like get to like sit and 
perform a scene or settle with something or like let the camera hold on them. That's not anything particularly fantastic that I'm doing, except maybe allowing a little bit of breathing room. Like you give somebody just a chance to settle with something. So many scenarios that you see in films are like somebody's rushing somewhere. There's something going on that just is clouding an ability to like, just to see what's going on. If you're too much rushing around or too much cutting. Sometimes it's just yeah. like, well, I, I don't know where to look. That's why I think Tiffany Haddish could have been as good as she is in that movie, but it was really well directed and it was really actually really well put together. I mean, she, it, there's, it's conceivable that she could have done that performance and it might have been missed. Like this thing we were talking about before, cut the wrong thing or not frame it the right way. But there's a lot of like just patient directing and letting those girls do their thing, not trying to spice it up, not trying to shazam it all over the place. And I think that allows her to like fucking just give me the keys. Just yeah. put that over there and let me do my thing and don't don't get in the way. So as we're sort of wrapping this up, um, uh, I'm, I'm going to ask a question that I feel like now like we're at a, you're on a panel. And I get up in front of the microphone. I go, hey, I have a question for you. But let's just let's just say that there are two guys who are sitting in front of you who, who separately are both going to direct their first thing, first movie, sometime within the next year or two. Mm-hmm. What uh, what would you say to those guys? Like, what is it? What what what's is there is there any like when you when you sort of distill it down and when you think about directing, what is it? What do you think your job is? And then also like, what are some things that you like, just, you know, wisdom nuggets or things like mantras that you have, or just ways that you think about it? Well, the first thing I would suggest is that you go get Daniel Day Lewis. Oh, great idea. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you just retired though. Because I'm going to get him out of retirement. Because then you do a horror movie. You'll, you'll look, you, you will look like the greatest director. (laughs) You know, um, whatever you're going to do, get good actors. And and I I mean, a lot of this conversation has been about that. Like, get get those actors, talk to them early, get them involved, and get because they're they're the ones, and they're they're going to be the thing they're looking at. That's what I would. I that's my that's my one piece of free advice. (laughs) And um, the other thing, I mean, even about directing, this is my one other thing that I found. I think I've said this before. Is like. Trouble that I've had consistently, 10 out of 10 times directing was always like when the writing was shit. Like, you go to, you got a really good scene, you get there that day, suddenly you're like, it's falling together. I mean, yeah, you, it's work, but it, it generally falls together if it's well written. Like, and you can, you know it on the page. And those kind of like ones that you haven't dealt with that are sitting out there, or even something that you think is well written that ultimately you can't see the time is actually not even going to be in the movie. Yeah. Those are the days. Those are the days where your head's exploding and you're like biting your lip and you're like, well, I don't know what's going on. I can't figure it out. I've found that it's always about the writing. That's my, that's the only two things I can say. Cause I, it's not, it's not that hard to go to work each day when the writing's good. You're like, right, just keep it simple, keep it straight, make plays, make plays. Like I remember telling, guy I was working with at the time like you just drive him to work and he's like just he said the greatest thing to me was like just make plays it was like the <laughs> basketball metaphor it was like that thing you see when you're like everybody's trying to do too much shit and you know like the coach is like just make plays right <laughs> like that was good advice that he gave me sitting in the back of the car just make plays i was like great that's a good one excellent <laughs> so phantom thread is the movie oh what, this is going up the oh it's christmas day is it christmas yes, day yeah yeah Jan, Jan, it's coming out in um the end of january 
for the rest of the country. So why? So limited release uh, Christmas and then wide release at the end of January. Yes. Great. Thank you so much for coming on. And, Thanks for having and, me in your and home. Talking. It was really nice to see you and uh, and uh, go see the movie. Uh, enjoy your burrito, everyone. Okay. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. Hey, you. It's Jason Bateman. Have you listened to Smartless? Smartless is the podcast that I host with my friends who are more like brothers. The super talented and funny Will Arnett and Sean Hayes is... JJ, well, JJ, JJ, why are, yeah. you, why are you whispering? Well, it, there's, there's a psst in the, in, the, in the copy. But people are listening, so it's like... They are listening. Like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. In each episode of Smartless, one of us reveals our mystery guest to the other two. What ensues is a genuinely improvised and authentic conversation. Our mystery guests span... Our mystery... We'll cut this out. Our mystery guests... All right, here we, we go. We got a lot of big famous people from different walks of life, and if you're yeah, a yeah, Wondery fan, then you're going to... Stone. Yeah. Just you come and listen Tyson. to it. We're yeah. on Wondery right now, and you can listen uh, to us. And no matter what you're doing, you're at the gym or you're in the car, just listen yeah. to the podcast. Sean, tell them where they can find it. Follow Smartless on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Smartless ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Bye. Bye. Bye.